Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. Well, take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 7 this morning. If you can stand to honor God in the reading of His Word, uh, then I would ask you to stand. You know, one of the joys of coming in here each Sunday now, it's always a joy to come in here for me, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it's now it is looking out over the congregation and seeing some of you showing up again, and uh, we're grateful you have uh, made good and right choices for yourself, and we're glad, but we're so glad to see you again. And uh, so uh, Dan and Kathy Fowler, uh, who haven't been here in a long time <laughs> because of COVID, and uh, we welcome you. We're glad you're back there on the front row. So yeah, give them a hand. We're glad they're back. And Michelle Steinbus. You don't know how joyful it was just to walk in here this morning and see you mask and all. It's, it's, I know you're happy to be back here as well. So let's welcome them back. We're glad they're here and others. Praise God. James chapter four. We're nearing the end of our study of James. It's been a, a wonderful journey for me. I've learned so much that I did not know. And I praise God for that. Verse seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that as it is. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we don't gather here in this place on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights to hear somebody's opinion about some subject, even if it's connected to the Bible. We're here under the authority of your word to hear your word. So I pray today that through the help of your Holy Spirit, you would, you would help me first and foremost through your anointing, 
to help people to see the truth in your word, to see it, to look at it and say, yeah, it's there. I, I see that. Then we can know that the truth is not somebody's opinion about the truth. The truth is your inerrant, infallible, fully true, absolutely true truth. And that truth comes to us to set us free, really free. So bring freedom today, Lord, that we might be confronted by and call to the beautiful life that you have for us that's only found under the Lordship of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we entered the war zone, and it's the war zone that we all engage in as believers. If you are one seeking to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're engaged every day of your life in a battle. Now, it is important to know what I prayed earlier from the Apostle Paul, that there's a difference between a battle and the war. Uh, The war is over. The war was fought for us at the cross. When Jesus went to the cross by God's predestined plan and foreknowledge, according to Peter's sermon in Acts 2, when Jesus went to the cross, having finished the mission that God gave him to be involved in, when he died on that cross, he purchased forever the salvation of every person who would ever come to him to believe in him and to surrender our lives to him. And that victory that he purchased at the cross was vindicated through his resurrection. He's the only one ever raised from the dead who still lives. And he lives even at the right hand of God and rules over this world and in his kingdom and through his church. The war is over. As a believer, you can know that God has given you victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you sense that God called you to follow Jesus and you said, yes, I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus as Lord. I'm going to put my hand to this plow. This is the field in which I'm going to plow. And Jesus is the one leading me. And I'm going to walk behind him. I'm going to seek to love him and worship him and follow him and be faithful to him, serve him, obey him, honor him, exalt him. That's the commitment of every believer. And when you made that commitment, you began to fight a battle. And, and the battle goes on inside our souls every day of our lives. And we talked about this last week when we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, but we came to verse 5, where James speaks under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and he gives us hope through three realities that are given to every child of God. Here's the first reality. Uh, You will see it on the screen. The Holy Spirit 
lives in every believer. If you're saved on the day of your salvation, God sent his Holy Spirit into your life and he doesn't leave. And his presence in your life is to lead you into the truth of God, to help you learn God's word, to love God's word, and to live out God's word. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to keep our focus on Jesus and to follow Jesus. That's the first truth that is found in verse 5 where James says, Are you, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But even though the Holy Spirit lives in us, we're still sinners who sin, right? We still we still fail and we stumble and we don't get it right. That's why the next thing that we're given is grace. We're given grace when we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. But then day by day, we're given more grace. That's what he says. Beginning of verse 6, he gives more grace. He gives us his spirit because we can't do it on our own. And even with his spirit living in us, we fail and fall short of what God designs and desires for us. So God just keeps giving us more and more grace, which really should cause us not to think at all highly of ourselves. It should humble us before God. And that's why the third thing that he gives us through his spirit is the capability to walk in humility before God. This is God's promise to us. This is God's assurance to us. As we fight this battle, we have the assurance of God's presence, God's power, and God's purpose being worked out in us and through us. But if you're going to fight a battle, you need a strategy. Jesus talked about a man who is going to build a tower. And no man who is a good builder would even begin to build a tower without a plan, knowing how that plan is going to operate. He also speaks of a person going into battle. If he's going to fight the enemy troops from another place, he has a strategy so that he can be successful in the battle. In humility, we bow before God. And in humility before God, we want to fight this battle not by our plan, but by his plan. Humility is so essential in this fight that we fight. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 66 too. This is the one to whom I look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The psalmist says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. So we come in humility before God and we say to God, we are going to engage this battle every day of our lives. What's your strategy? And he says, here it is. So look at it here in James chapter 4. It's unfolded for us in seven elements. Number one, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit is an imperative, and it's straight out of the Roman military. The word has to do with order. Order. 
If you're in the military or have been in the military, the sergeant in charge of your platoon doesn't really care about your opinion, right or wrong. He's in charge. You're a private, he's a sergeant, he doesn't ask you, what do you think? How do you think we ought to do this? This is not a democracy. This is the term. We are to submit ourselves to God, and God has an order for our lives, but God has an order for his church. God has ordained his church to operate in a certain way. And it doesn't matter how the church has always operated. It doesn't matter about the traditions of the church. What matters is we listen to the word of God. And you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 1 under the Old Covenant. You can read Acts 20. You can read 1 Timothy 3. You can read all of Titus. Uh, You can read other places in the Bible and God's order for how his church is to operate spiritually and practically is very clear. And when we begin to mess with God's order, we're beginning to play God. The church in Corinth was in a mess. And Paul wrote to this church to address the mess in which the church found itself. And this church was in a mess because they compromised the gospel. And when they compromised the gospel, the church got completely out of order. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and you will hear near the end of this letter what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40. It is a very important verse. In the church of God under which Jesus is Lord, all things should be done decently And in order, that word in order is the same word that James uses. God has his way of doing things in the church that he's made clear in his word. And we as his people do not debate with him. We do not discuss it. We just say, yes, Lord. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. When a church is rightly ordered, doing what God has called us to do. When your life is rightly ordered, doing what God has called you to do, I can tell you what's going to happen. Satan's going to come against you. You will be attacked. And you will sense that, you will know that, you will feel that. There are some of you who are facing this. God, what's going on in my life? I love you and I want to serve you and I'm trying to order my life and my family. I'm trying to be a part of a church where it's rightly ordered. And I've never faced such problems and pressures. Well, praise God. (laughs) Because that's what always happens. Uh, This is God's plan because when we are submitted to God, then... Satan is going to come against us. So it's no accident. These things are tied together, interlocked like links in a chain. The James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He's going to come against you, seduce you, tempt you, try to get you to follow his ways that he allures you to through the ways of the world. 
The word resist is an imperative. It means to stand against. The way we stand against the devil is to stand upon the authority of the Lord of, uh, of the Word of God, to stand on the authority of the Lordship of Jesus, to stand together in our commitment to Jesus. You know, if you're going through problems in your life personally or problems in your family and you're struggling and there's a battle going on, you need in your life, you must have in your life people who are fighting the same battle because you can help each other, you can hold hands and embrace one another and encourage one another. It's so necessary. We can't fight this battle alone. Resist the devil, and what does it say? If you stand against the devil, what's he going to do? He's going to flee. Now, let me tell you something I'd like to tell you. I'd love to tell you this. When he flees, he's gone. <laughs> no. Wouldn't that be great? I resisted him. He laughed. You know what he does when he leaves you? He regroups. A man possessed by demons has demons cast out of him. They wander around in desert places. They gather a throng and they come back to the same house. The devil wants to disrupt our devotion to Jesus. He wants to destroy our commitment. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Fourthly. Now, thirdly, draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will, that's a promise. He will draw near to you. Draw near to God. Now, this could be talking about worship. I don't think it is. I think this is talking about our own personal intimacy with God. You're struggling spiritually. You're not, we're, we're so much into feelings, so we measure our spiritual life even by our feelings, unfortunately. And you're just not feeling, you're not feeling it, that God is there. Now, what should you do? You should draw near to God more than ever. more than ever you should fast before God because nothing matters more than to you than the presence of God the psalmist says as the deer pants for the flowing stream so my heart longs for you better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere draw near to God seek God hunger for God thirst for God Plead with God, pray to God, praise God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. One of the realities of drawing near to God is the closer we get to God, the more we see our own sin. We see that we really are that we really are wretches in God's sight. We're not as good as we thought we were, and we're not as good as Mama told us we are. That's why James says that we are to wash our hands, cleanse 
your hands, you sinners. Uh, Sinners is a word that has to do with our nature. We're all sinners. We're born in sin. It's our basic nature. And, And that sinfulness shows up in our thoughts. It shows up in our speech. It shows up in our actions. So this cleansing your hands is a symbol. And it's a symbol of sin in our hearts. But it's not enough just to wash your hands. You must go deeper than that. You must go inside your life. That's why James says next, we're not only to cleanse our hands, we are to purify our hearts, you double-minded. We are to seek God to forgive us and to restore us because, look, every one of us as believers in this kind of world in which we live, we can be duplicitous. We can love the world and the things of the world. We can, we can enjoy those desires of the flesh that we want to gratify. Uh, we can really want to be like other people who are not believers so that we can join in with them. We can desire to be duplicitous. And God says through James, bring your hearts before me and purify your hearts so that you grow in the singularity and exclusivity of your devotion to me and see that we're sinners and we stand before God that way and we could not stand before God but by his grace. That's why James says next, be wretched. He uses three words here that have to do with the outpouring of emotion. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Hate your sin. Wail over your sin. Despise your sin. Desire to be rid of your sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep so that your laughter is turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Think of David in Psalm 51. When David had sinned with Bathsheba and when he had sinned in the murder of Uriah, when Nathan confronted him and David confessed his sin, who does David say he sinned against? Bathsheba? Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against Uriah? Absolutely. But who does David say he sinned against? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. All of our sin, little and large, small and great, is high treason against our holy God. And our sin as believers should move us to weeping and wailing and moaning and groaning. Not just to say, oh, well, I'm grateful for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. We don't understand if we think that way or even speak that way. We don't understand our sin or his sovereign grace and mercy. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Ecclesiastes, go to Ecclesiastes. I'm reading through Ecclesiastes right now and... 
My Quiet Time is one of the books I'm reading through. And Listen to Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death. Do you see this? Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Can I put that in very appropriately popular language? It's better to go to the funeral home for a funeral than to go to the wedding parlor for a wedding. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. I think, I think these are hard words for people in our day. I think even in the church, we love laughter more than we love crying. And we want to have the kinds of events that, that make us laugh, make us feel good. And yet the movement of God by His Spirit that takes us into revival begins with people so seeing our sinfulness before God and God's holiness and righteousness that we are driven to the altar with tears. Because we know how good God is and how kind he has been to us. We love to gather to rejoice. But we're not so sure about repentance. Particularly if repentance means I've got to tell somebody else what's really going on with me. I've got to be honest about my sin and my struggles with another brother or another sister. Five hundred years ago today, Martin Luther stood before the diet of Verms. He had previously posted his 95 theses to the castle door at Wittenberg. The Roman Catholic Church taught then and teaches today that the only way we can have any assurance of salvation is through penance, through works. We have to receive the Mass, we have to go to confession, and we have to do alms or we have to give gifts to the church so the church's ministry can be expanded. We have to earn our way to God. Martin Luther, in the first of those 95 theses, wrote, the Christian life is a life of daily repentance, not penance. It's a day-by-day discipline of turning from our sin and turning to God, knowing 
knowing that nothing we do can save us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of what Jesus has done for us alone. And that's what the scriptures teach us so that all glory can be given to God. The wailing over our sin does lead to rejoicing because we rejoice in the good gift of God in Jesus Christ that has saved us. But it also leads us, it leads us to humility. This is what James says. He begins in verse 6 with a call to humility. In verse 6 he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then in verse 10 he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Martin Luther on his deathbed thought to be the last words he ever uttered with these words, we are beggars. This is true. Phillips Brooks said that the sharing of the gospel with others is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Here's the battle plan. The battle plan takes us to the place where this is what we see about ourselves. Every believer in this room, this is what you see about yourself. I am nothing. God is everything. And by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, I'm going to live every day in dependence on him and in devotion to him. And what James does very quickly is he gives us two warnings. I want you to see these warnings. This is a part of the battle strategy. The first is found in verses 11 and 12. It's about our relationships with one another in the church. The second one is found in verses 13 through 16. It's about who we are as humans. So this is what he says about our relationship to one another. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. You're bound together by the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ, receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Don't speak evil against one another. Uh, the word speak evil against also means not just to speak against, but to speak down. Both are evil. Uh, the church is supposed by God's design to be made up of all kinds of people. Ethnically, economically, socially, spiritually. There should be here today spiritually those who are mature and there should be those spiritually here today who are babies. Both as a part of the beautiful body of Christ. We don't speak against one another. We don't speak down to one another. There may be a hierarchy in the world. There is no hierarchy in the church. 
There's not one single person in this room. I hope we know this, believe it, and base our lives on it together. There is no single person in this room from the pulpit throughout who is bigger or better than anyone else. And we shouldn't have to arm wrestle to prove it. Don't speak evil against one another. We don't exist together in this battle to kill each other. One of the great problems the church has struggled with over the years is we don't have to worry about Satan through the world killing our wounded. We'll do that for him. We shoot our wounded all the time. I love driving through the countryside in the south and I see Beulah Baptist Church. Two miles down the road, I see Beulah number two. Five miles down the road, I see New Beulah Baptist Church. And you don't have to guess where that came from. These were church fights where people killed each other. And these churches emerged out of those church fights. And they're all gathering to praise God on Sundays, in most cases, without ever being repentant or reconciled. And expecting the blessing of God, which will not come. Don't speak evil against one another. Don't speak down to one another. Well, why? Well, he tells us. Listen to what he says. When you speak against a brother, when you speak down to a brother or sister, you're judging him. You're acting like you're bigger and better and badder. Not only that, you're speaking against the word of God. You're saying that you know the word of God and this person's responsibilities in relationship to the word of God more you're speaking evil against the word of God you're judging the word of God and if you're judging the word of God the end of verse 11 you can't be doing the word of God you're spending your time talking about those who are not doing it and speaking against them and speaking down to them (laughs) there's only one lawgiver verse 12 and judge He's the only one able to save sinners as he desires and to destroy, to send to hell. That's what the word destroy means. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't judge your neighbor. Don't speak down to your neighbor. Don't speak against your neighbor. Go engage your neighbor. Go love your neighbor. Go hug your neighbor. Not for a few more weeks, but. Then he addresses us. Come now, you who say, how many of you would agree, just think about yourself for a minute. How many of you would agree that in your life you've been monetarily and materially blessed? Would you say that? You don't have everything you want, but you have most of what you need, right? It's you and me to whom James is talking here. It's us. This is what he says. Because this is the way we tend to live our lives. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
And they're making their plans. It's not wrong to plan. We should plan. Solomon says we are to make our plans, but we are to know that God's in control of our plans and he orders our steps. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Why are you acting as if you're in control of your life? I'm going to do this tomorrow and next week I'm going to do this and the next week I'm going to do that and I know I'm going to do all those things. Here's the question we must ask. It's at the middle of verse 14. What is your life? What is it? Well, James doesn't wait on us to answer. He gives us the answer. Here's what he says. He says, your life is, well, your life is a mist. It appears for a little time, then it vanishes. Poof. I started to get Paul Williams to come up about this time down the aisle with the fogger machine. Just show us how long the fog lasts. It doesn't last long. It's just a vapor. That's who we are. That's what our life is. So because of that, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. We will live. If the Lord lives, we will live. We won't live if he doesn't will it. And if we don't live, we can't do this or that. That's what we should say. If the Lord will, the Lord willing. I think that's a good thing to say. We had a staff member here once. Some of you remember Robert Lynch. Robert Lynch, wonderful, godly man. And I would ask Robert to do something, and Robert would say, I'll be glad to if the Lord wills. The Lord willing. I would often say to him, uh, tomorrow we're going to do this, Robert. And Robert would say, if the Lord wills. I asked him one day, why, why, do you, why do you say that? And he said, James 4. <laughs> it's there, isn't it? It's a reminder to us every day of our lives that we don't have tomorrow. And if we don't live that way, This is what he says, verse 16, we boast in our arrogance. None of us has any reason to boast about anything. Do you agree? About anything. All such boasting when we boast about ourselves is evil. So whoever knows the right thing. I want you to see this and I'm done. When we give our lives to Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. He brings us into a church family. He brings us under the authority of the word. He begins to grow us in holiness as we learn to love God through his word more and more. That's what God does for us. The right thing for you and me is to yield our lives completely to Jesus. But, but Al, I'm already a Christian. Let me say it again. The right thing for you is to yield your life completely to Jesus. He's Lord. 
And you ought to be yielding your life. I ought to be yielding my life to him every day. Because the world's screaming at us every day. Satan's seducing us every day. Our flesh is crying out every day. And we ought to be saying, I'm submitting my life today to you, Jesus, your Lord. The phrase, the right thing, uses a Greek word that literally means beautiful. Beautiful. I think Satan has seduced a lot of us, even in the church, into thinking the good life is to love Jesus and to love the world all at the same time. Oh, that might produce a good life. But God wants more for that, more for you than that. God wants to give you a beautiful life. And the most beautiful life is when you lay your life down before Jesus. He's Lord. He owns everything. He owns me. And until he comes, I'm going to give myself, even in my sin, to live for him. Because when I come to the end, I don't want God to say he lived a good life. I want him to say he lived a beautiful life. Father, we thank you that you have come in Jesus Christ to save us, to win the war for us, and then to send us to the battlefield. And that battlefield is all around us, but that battlefield is within us. And you've given us everything we need to fight the good fight and to finish the course and to keep the faith. You call us to come to you just as we are, and you call us to come to you just as we are, not just once but every day of our lives in the midst of all of our successes, in the midst of all of our struggles, in the midst of all of our wins and all of our defeats, in the midst of everything we face and everything that faces us. Just as I am, without one plea, but that Thou blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God. I come, not just today, but every day.